welcome to Hungry Ghosts. <laughs> uh, welcome to Hungry Ghosts, another episode this week, and it's about food and colonialism, mm. um, which basically originated as an excuse for us to talk about curry. <laughs> what favourite food? Which we're both obsessed with. Uh, Matt Morgan, the comedy writer on his podcast, he always talks about a time in his life when he was like chemically addicted to curry. <laughs> and I feel like we both probably could definitely sum up the last like yeah, uh, yeah. fifteen years of life at least. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Curry. I mean, we're no strangers to a curry eating challenge. No, for example, that's very true. We did uh, at a restaurant in it was Moogly, wasn't it? Was it? Moogly, Moogly, yeah. in Man- called Moogly in Manchester, which is uh, well, very nice curry, very house. nice, a great curry house. Um, we'll take sponsorship for Moogly yeah, if they we're are. interested in a, a partnership with, with the guys at Moogly um, but they used to do a file challenge where mm. by, you had to eat a file we had to sign a waiver first and, then yes. to eat a and for those file. who don't know files the, the hottest curry going traditionally in the in the British rankings of yeah. curry heat exactly. hotter than a vindaloo and it went... So I ate about a mouthful of mine. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you finished it. I finished it. You were one of two completants, I think, yeah. of the file challenge. Um, we did have to take one of our friends to hospital. <laughs> uh, but thankfully, the service was so... Well, I suppose they probably thought, this guy's not a priority, he's just an mm. idiot student. Yeah, it probably um, happened all the time. It probably happened all the time. <laughs> so he was just like writhing around on the floor in uh, A&E. In A&E. And then by the time they got around to seeing him, he was sort of half feeling all right, but then half just too embarrassed mm. to go and get treated for eating a hot curry. Quite a large amount of hot part of the uh, the nonsense that occurred that night was that the reward for eating the curry was a round of shots for the table yeah. of Sambuca. No one wanted to do theirs. I was experiencing quite a severe chilli high after finishing mine. <laughs> <laughs> and thought I could take all those Sambucas, which yeah. when mixed with the intense heat of a farm in my belly and, and when I came crashing back down to earth post-chilli high led to uh, quite a large amount of sick outside the restaurant, let's yeah. say. yeah. It can happen. It can happen. Um, when that was around the same time, you did another chili eating com- competition, didn't yeah. you? Yeah, curry based. Yeah, um, I did a. It was like some sort of chili festival in the northern quarter once, and mm. I went and uh, did the chili eating competition. And there was, I think, six or seven of us com- competing, um, and there was six rounds, and we all got through all the rounds, and so uh, no one had been knocked out or said it was too difficult. And so the, the organisers, I think, panicked a bit and were like, oh, fuck, we weren't, we weren't expecting this to happen. So they started just giving us, like, nonsense amounts of, like, the hottest chilies in the world, and mostly in dry format, because I think that's what they had just lying around, was, like, crumbs yeah. of chilli. Um, and it got to... I was... I was the, the, the final two were me and another guy. I saw the and the, your people were getting knocked out because they were doing these nonsense chilies after that final two was me and this other guy I thought if I have another bite of this chilli or anything I'm going to be sick on this stage in front of this crowd of literally tens of people <laughs> <laughs> so I called it quits and went and enjoyed some milk and the guy who won did in fact vomit in front of in front of everyone in the end so I yeah. think uh I mean, no one had the last laugh, but... It was, it was a hollow victory for him. <laughs> it was a hollow victory for him. You came out with your dignity intact. <laughs> At least my dignity intact. <laughs> uh, what happened, I'm interested to know the sort of medium-term effects of eating that much chilli. What mm. happens when, like, the next day, for example? You don't have to go into too much. Yeah, I think... 
I mean, I remember the, the the rest of the day was particularly painful. Like, I had severe, severe stomach cramps for hours and hours and hours. Yeah. Really struggled to sleep. I was, like, shaking a lot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then I, I think, obviously, the next day you do experience, um, let's say, a burning sensation down under. Right. Um, <laughs> definitely chilly-related. <laughs> definitely chilly-related. Yeah. Uh, but no, you know, no... It's certainly in the memory, it was about 10 years ago, but certainly in the memory it was no worse than a particularly spicy curry right so that was it was more the the pain on the Short day term. off that was yeah that was the, the bad thing really yeah um yeah i just lay on the sofa basically the rest of the day and, and yeah felt sorry for myself yeah shaking yeah <laughs> um sometimes chili curry in competitions in, in fact have uh led to legal ramifications have they not yes they have indeed there have been some Extremely dangerous, um, and extremely dangerously hot curries out there that have been made and, and sold commercially. Um, one that really springs to mind is the story of Ian Rothwell, a 55 year old uh, consultant radiologist. Um, he went to uh, the the Bindi restaurant in Grantham in Lincolnshire. Um, home of Margaret Thatcher. Home of Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> uh, to take on their The Widower right. <laughs> curry, <laughs> which uh, tops a pretty decent 6 million units on the Scoville scale uh, and is hotter than a drink of anti-riot tear gas. Uh, the, cu- the curry has 20 Naga Infinity chilies, which is the second hottest chili on the planet. And it has to be prepared by chefs wearing goggles and a face mask. Um, it's also served in an absolutely hilarious bowl that maybe we'll put on our social, yeah. <laughs> our social types of people. Branded Vidura Widower bowl. Vidura the Widower. Uh, you obviously have to sign a disclaimer, as, as you would with many, um, many of these kind of challenge curries. Dr. Rothwell experienced severe hallucinations halfway through eating the curry and had to go out for a walk, where his wife found him wandering alone along the high street. This is echoes of Boris Johnson walking out for pizza. Exactly. After fighting back tears for another hour, Dr. Rothwell finally managed to swallow the last mouthful to defeat the dish. I like hot curries and have at least one a week, he says, but this was off the scale. It took me about an hour to eat it. I had to stop halfway through and go out for a walk and some fresh air. My wife and the owner were quite worried and said I was hallucinating, but I managed to go back inside and finish the curry. Do we have any detail about what he was hallucinating? Um, let's see. I like the idea that he was, he was experiencing some sort of like <laughs> spiritual crisis, like him eating the curry was like <laughs> Buddha defeating like Maya. Maybe, yeah. And then he had to... In order to end the hallucinations, he had to go back and finish the curry. <laughs> yeah. Essentially, he doesn't specifically say what he was hallucinating. He says, I just think it was just all the endorphins from the chili, uh, from yeah, the chilies. Yeah. His daughter, um, Alice, 23, said that she tried uh, the curry but could only manage half a teaspoon. Um, we were all clutching our stomachs after just half a teaspoon. It, bl- it blew my head off. Um, uh, more than 300 people have taken on the widower. Wow. Um, but in uh, Rothwell is the only one who's successfully finished it. Most people are sweating, crying, shaking, and vomiting after seven mouthfuls. And he's a doctor, right? And he's a doctor. So there you go. Yeah, it's medically sanctioned. So if you're ever there in the home of Margaret Thatcher, 
check out the Bindi restaurant and uh, give the, the widower a go. Yeah. Um, what about the dog that was addicted to curry? <laughs> <laughs> well, this uh, reporting our local newspaper, the the MEN, the Manchester oh, right. Evening News. So I don't, hopefully it's a local interest story. Um, but the headline is dog banned from eating curry because a curry mad dog has been banned from his favourite food <laughs> after wolfing down too much of the spicy stuff. Uh, oh yeah, he is a local pooch. He's from uh, he's from Chilton. Oh right, right. Uh, just up the road from from uh, Hungry Ghosts HQ. Yeah. Um, and he's uh, called Dante, the uh, the dog. It's a good name for it. It's a very good. Fiery dog. Yeah. Um, so he's been... Uh, basically, he got, a, he got a taste for curry as a young pup when a former lodger started to feed him leftovers from takeaway curries. Since then, Dante has turned his nose up at regular dog, dog food and often tries to uh, escape to try and pick up curry leftovers outside of local kebab houses. Wow. Um, Pauline, his owner, said, I've started giving him different dog food that's a bit tastier, but as far as Dante can, is concerned, nothing compares to curries. Completely, completely I mean, agree with that. Yeah, that, the thing is, like, he's got the option between dry dog biscuit food, which is the same, like, <laughs> yeah. twice, which normal dogs go mental for, but that's probably just because they don't know... <laughs> You know, perhaps a butter chicken or a exactly a Fraser. Yeah, and like many people who enjoy curry, Dante is a little bit on the large side, and this is, is why it? he had to be taken off it because uh, the health impact of his curry-based diet on his his waistline um, was having severe impact, and he was basically on his deathbed. <laughs> so <laughs> the, the vets have uh, have ordered Pauline to keep him away from takeaways. Keep him on the bog standard dog food. Put a muzzle on him so that in, on the off chance he escapes or walks past some curry, he doesn't just snaffle it up. So he's really on quite a strict uh, curry diet. And yeah. I mean, I feel for the poor guy being muzzled so he can't enjoy a curry. Yeah, me too. And I can only imagine that um, during his curry eating phase, yeah, Dante's back passage could only be described as an inferno. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It does have a nice ending, though. Oh, yeah. Um, a local... Well, it doesn't really say who this guy is, but I assume a local kind of curry man who... Um, curry restaurant owner who um, knows Dante took pity on him and created a healthy chicken bolty, which will not inflame his stomach oh, problems good. and uh, give him more weight. Um, and, and the man in question said, no curry lover should be deprived of their favourite food. So we came up with something that Dante can enjoy without have, giving himself any more health problems. Great. That is just brilliant, isn't it? Love that. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, hopefully our curry story ends similarly. <laughs> hopefully we don't get so addicted to curry that we have to stop eating it for medical reasons. <laughs> There's also been something uh, a little bit spooky happening in the world of curry houses That's recently. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very spooky. Um our very own Hungry Ghost uh, was spotted <laughs> um, by Lucy Watson, um, who was adamant that she saw her late husband um, tucking into a meal with his son in the Spice Cottage restaurant in Hampshire um, in a video that was posted by the restaurant in January. 
So, unfortunately, uh, Mrs. Watson's uh, late husband passed in 2013, so she thought, until <laughs> until she saw him posted, uh, until she saw him eating in the Spice Cottage uh, Curry House's promotional video, and she was adamant that, um, well, it was her... Her dead husband. Well, yeah, this was quite recently, wasn't it? So this was this year. So this was in January this year. Yeah. She thought, oh, you know, this is, this is someone who's died 10 years ago. Um, but no, he's live and well eating curries with his son down the road. Uh, the the restaurant were adamant that they filmed it on Friday the 13th of January Ooh. 2023. So there is a spooky element uh, to it. And maybe he'd chosen that spooky day to come back and... Um, this presumably because they didn't want to admit that they hadn't redecorated for the last 10 years. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, the restaurant insisted that it was them, them, and he said, I know this customer, he comes in all the time. Uh, I think he was with a friend and not with his son. It's definitely not your dead husband. Right. Um, the woman uh, watched the footage 30 times to check uh, and was adamant that it was, and she was unable to pause the video, she said, so she couldn't find a screenshot. But obviously the son doing their due diligence, as they always do, yeah. um, managed to, to get a screenshot of it. And I would say, uh, it this guy sat right at the back of the of the frame. It's, it could be any generic... That's just uh, an old man. Old English man. Um, yeah. So... And the yeah. other guy, his supposed son, is literally just the back of his head. Literally just the back of his head. Again, could be anyone. They're wearing very nondescript clothes. Yeah. It's almost impossible to tell. Yeah. Well, uh, it's safe to say that Spice Cottage has been vindicated. Uh, the yeah. mystery has been solved. And it was indeed just someone else. Right. <laughs> Random John. <laughs> Random John. Not sure uh, why anyone would waste the time writing about this article but you know fair enough we're talking about a podcast so. slow news day I guess slow news day yeah so as you said we want to talk about curry but it is in fact a interesting launch pad for a mm. podcast episode particularly in the context of food and colonialism because oh. obviously the reason South Asian curry uh, came to the UK was because of colonisation of the subcontinent by the British yeah um, and now it's kind of been elevated to the status of some of our favourite food, right up there with like the national foods. Yes, chicken tikka um, masala, they say, right? It's yeah, the national dish of Britain. Exactly. Yeah. So, in fact, I mean, many people say that, including mm. uh, a section on the NATO website. Wow, which I found, <laughs> which describes uh, it says as just as there is no single. National Day in the UK, there is not a single national dish of Britain, mainly because it's made up of four separate countries with their own national dishes, and it says haggis in Scotland, Welsh call in Wales, and stew in Irish stew in Northern Ireland. And it says for England, chicken tikka masala. I would agree with that. Uh, and so the as for where it was invented, there's a few different competing theories. Some, I mean, some people have said, actually, it's... Because it, the thing that's unique about it is the combination... So tikka normally is like a dry... Mm. Yeah. meat dish yeah. but obviously tikka masala is that in a sauce mm. and the most sort of uh, closest thing to being accepted here is that it was uh, invented by Ali Ahmed Aslam um, who lived in Glasgow uh, in sadly he actually died last December 
that's a shame. Yeah, seventy-seven. So R.I.P. Mr. Ali. But uh, yeah, he was born in Pakistan, moved with his family to Glasgow as a young boy. Um, before opening his restaurant in Glasgow's West End in 1964. And he said that he, in the 70s, he invented chicken tikka masala when a customer asked if there was a way to make chicken tikka less dry. Mm. Um, so he added like a yogurt masala sort of sauce. Yeah, then they said that he originally used uh, Heinz tomato soup yeah. in, the, in the sauce. Oh, yeah, some sort of condensed soup. Mm. Yeah. Um, uh, this article also quotes um, the former... British Foreign Secretary Robin Cook, who in 2001 said in a speech about Britain's multiculturalism, he said, Chicken tikka masala is now a true British national dish, not only because it's the most popular, but because it is a perfect illustration of the way Britain absorbs and adapts external influences. Chicken tikka is an Indian dish. The masala sauce was added to satisfy the desire of British people to have their meat served in gravy. Mm. Now that all sounds very... uh, Nice and cosy sort of thing. Um, but then it's also very much in line with colonialists going over, pillaging other people's countries for well, everything, resources, yes. but also food, culture. Britain obviously did that to vast swathes of the world, probably India, probably more than any, anywhere else. Mm, absolutely. Um, but I think just to say, you know, it's not just enough to just say colonialism was bad because it's like goes without saying, but it kind of ignores the subtleties of the relationship and mm. how the sort of give and take of it and so with India um this sort of cultural exchange goes both ways because we love food that was derived from yeah um, and obviously the British took all sorts of things uh, in all sorts of bad ways as well but then in in India um there a lot of the things which now define Indian national identity um and in, also in Pakistan and, and other countries in uh, South Asia, uh, are kind of inextricably linked to colonialism. Right. So like cricket, cricket, for example, yeah. uh, the railways we're yeah. very proud of in India. Um, and uh, the same goes for tea, mm. which was introduced, not introduced to India by the British, but introduced kind of to Indian culture because uh, tea, black tea did grow, is native to Assam right. and then east to China. Yeah. But it was never drunk in India apart from as like a herbal medicine sort of thing. And so um, in the 1830s, the East India Company basically wanted to disrupt the Chinese monopoly on yeah. tea. And this is partly, I mean, part of the reason they were making so the Chinese were making so much money from tea is because uh, the British consumed one pound of tea per person per year. <laughs> <laughs> and so they, they in the... Raj, they noticed that tea was growing wild in the northeastern states, like Assam, and they decided to take advantage of it. So they set up a tea industry in mm. India, um, and eventually more, more and more British tea was grown in India rather than and Sri Lanka, I think, rather than um, in China. But uh, for Indian people themselves, drinking tea remained kind of quite not that widespread until in the early twentieth century. The Indian Tea Association, which had been set up to like protect people who worked in the tea fields and tea factories, um, did, it's a classic case of they did a kind of campaign, mm. you know, like based around a certain food or drink in this case. Uh, so they um, started campaigning for factories, mines, and textile mills to provide tea breaks for their workers. 
which is a clever bit of yeah. uh, it makes it seem like they're doing something for like really noble reasons but then obviously the upshot was eventually tea became really popular in India and still is to this day mm. like everywhere you go uh, railway stations even on the train someone walk, like a, tea, a chai walla walks, walks yeah. down um, and they often they serve it in little clay pots which you you drink it and then chuck them on a pile and they recycle them and stuff and it's uh, obviously it, most people by now know what masala chai is like. They yeah. see they have, how they have it in India, like very milky sugar and mm. um, spices like ginger, cardamom, and, and stuff. Um, there's a really cool um, map of tea. so pretty much every not I don't know about every, but like loads and loads of languages in the world have their words for tea are either either sound like tea or they sound like, like chai. Or chai. Yeah. and um, you can basically trace it based on where sort of which empire or which type of empire introduced tea to the to which to the country mm. so um this is from uh, there's a linguistics expert called Asia Perelsveig who has a, a website called languageoftheworld.info and she says most words for tea are ultimately of chinese origin but they differ in their form due to their different dissemination or their different roots most chinese languages have a form similar to Cha, which is Mandarin, mm-hmm. but some Min Nan Chinese uh, has instead has forms which are more like Tay, like beginning with a T. Yeah, um, and the Dutch, who are the one from the Dutch East India Company, the ones who introduced tea to Europe first, um, came. Well, they had their their main contacts were in Fujian, where they spoke this Min Nan style, uh-huh. beginning with a T sound. Um, so they adopted the words tea or tea, uh, which is why now in English, French, Spanish, Italian, most European countries, um, it sounds like tea. Mm. The interesting exception is Portugal. Um, but uh, there's a really cool map where it shows basically that if tea came to your country by the sea, yeah. from like these mercantile-like empires like the british empire dutch empire you say something that sounds like tea mm-hmm. and if it came over land so for all of russia from china go to all of russia um down through the middle east and then all of north africa and eastern europe in fact they have a word that sounds more like char child cha, right because that was coming from the because it was coming mandarin. over land from from the mandarin yeah because yeah. yeah fujian and all those where it had a tea sound at the beginning were the coastal areas of china so they mm. went out via sea through the Dutch to Europe and then South America as well, which is interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Amazing. Um, speaking of Indian drinks, yes, we're having a nice Kingfisher. Yes, so today we're drinking Kingfisher premium lager beer, which I would say is the drink of choice to have with a curry. Um, yeah, no, no disrespect to Cobra. But I've always been a kingfisher guy. Myself. Yeah, but you I, don't often you don't always get it though nowadays. No, I think maybe Cobra's cornered the market a little bit in the kind of Indian uh, restaurant scene, certainly in the UK. Mm. I don't know if Cobra is even actually of Indian origin originally, or if it's just a kind of marketing thing for um, yeah the British uh, consumer. But certainly, Kingfisher um, is an Indian brand um, it's the big one in India as far as I can remember yeah it's according to um, online sources it's about 35% uh, of the Indian right. beer market is, is owned by Kingfisher 
says on the label since 1857. Um, technically true, uh, not really. It was re. Uh, it was the first Kingfisher was a brand, was a brand that was made in 1857, but then it went defunct for over a hundred years and was right. uh, re brought back to life um, in 1978. So that's when it's it's true kind of uh, the heritage of the modern brand really begins. It's like a um, Truman's Brewery. Exactly, job. like yeah. a Truman's Brewery job. Um, and it has a really fascinating history as well. It's not just a delicious, crisp lager to enjoy with a curry. Um, it's got quite an interesting backstory. So it was relaunched in uh, 1978, as I, met, as I mentioned, by a guy named VJ Malia, um, or Malaya, maybe, um, who is a basically the owner of United Breweries Group, which was his father's um, brewery company originally. He then um, subsequently inherited it. Um, and this guy basically was uh, sort of international playboy of Indian business, um, particularly at a time when the Indian economy was actually mostly state-run and almost in a kind of like Soviet-style um kind of market economy for, for m- most of its kind of early history, certainly until like the, the 1990s. Um, but this guy was kind of breaking all the moulds from like the 70s onwards, behaving much more like a kind of uh, vibrant, exciting, you know, playboy almost um, that you were more likely to see at that sort of time in places like the USA and, and maybe in the UK. Um, and he, he called himself the king of good times, um, and uh, but like had you know through like the biggest and best parties in India and was spending hundreds of millions on like his birthday parties um, he had Enrique Inglises play at one he had Lionel Richie play at one of his parties so he's you know definitely not afraid to flash his cash and uh, yeah have a good time basically which you know when you're a, a beer magnate you know, fair enough. If you're the king of good times, you've got to Exactly. Um, and uh, where it really started to go wrong for VJ was when he decided that um, not only that, that owning a beer brand wasn't enough, he needed to turn that beer brand into an airline brand. Right. So in 2005? Yeah, 2005. Um, he started Kingfisher Airlines, which was um, an airline group that basically set up to run uh, initially flights between India and London. Um, and he eventually wanted to kind of conquer the world with, with Kingfisher and make it into one of the world's premier airlines. Another way of um, a great... Uh, Part of the reason as well around Kingfisher Airlines was to advertise Kingfisher beer because alcohol branding, alcohol advertising was illegal in India at the time. Um, but obviously you can advertise an airline. Yeah, yeah. And he also did the same with water. So he made Kingfisher water at some stage. So it's called, um, I can't remember what it's called, but it's like a way of marketing something that you're not actually selling that product. Yeah. You're really trying to get them to buy the beer. Right, right. Um, but airlines are extremely expensive. Um VJ was clearly not the uh, the best businessman in the world, um, and unfortunately, after just a few years, so in two, in two thousand eleven, six years after starting it, Kingfisher Airlines went basically pretty much into administration. Finally, closed its operations on um, in twenty twelve. At this time, um, 
the kind of banks that owned large portions of, of VJ's empire started to circle um, and it was claimed that he owed over a billion dollars to his creditors in yeah. India. Um, subsequently, after his 60th birthday party, um, he fled to the UK of all places. Waited, waited for his party to be over. <laughs> yeah, uh, fled to the UK. Um, he, everyone was sort of saying he's fled. Why, you know, why is he fled? He's because of his, he's owed, he's owed all this money. He said he hadn't fled. He said, "I am an international businessman, and I have to leave India fairly frequently." <laughs> Which, you know, respect that. Yeah. Uh, said I did not flee from India, and neither am I an absconder. Rubbish. Um, he's not actually subsequently returned to India, so yes, he he is an absconder in that yeah. respect. <laughs> um, the court case is obviously opened, um, and have kind of like taken him to court both in India and in the UK, um, charged him with, you know, enormous fines. Um, and eventually I believe he, um, was, was sentenced to four months in prison in India. Um, I'm not sure if he's been extradited or if he's, uh, was charged in, in, um, absentia, but basically he went from owning a very successful beer brand to, uh, a international criminal in the space of yeah you know, a few years simply because he bought an airline. So he flew too close to the sun. He flew too close to the sun. <laughs> yeah. VJ. But, yeah, VJ, the king of good times. Anyway, anyway, great beer. Great beer. Goes well with the curry. Cheers. Cheers, VJ. To VJ. <laughs> Another famous Indian beer well actually not an Indian beer export more of an Indian beer import as it turns out mm. it's Indian pale ale yes of course so the story of IPA as you, no doubt you know already mm. is that um, in the days of the British Raj in India the pe- the British who were in India wanted the type of beer that they were used to yep. but it was pre-refrigeration and it couldn't survive the journey by boat no. uh, across to India um, and so, and it was too hot to brew it in India. Yeah. Uh, so they decided this was in the 1780s. A London brewer called Hodgson answered the call by creating a very strong, very hoppy beer, uh, which would survive, and it was kind of aged like wine a little bit before mm. drinking it, uh, which would survive the six month journey to India. Yeah. By boat. Um, and over the course of the journey, not only had it survived, it had improved. Right, in the, the barrels as well. In the barrels, yeah. Mm. So uh, that was the first, that was the original IPA, and that's why they called it India Pale Ale, and it was kind of, became marketed as that back home, and that's now why nowadays uh, hoppy, strong beers are called IPAs, but yeah. they're kind of different, obviously. Yeah, now. very different to what they would have been. Hops in that, con- the hops are a great preservative, so up in the hops content is what really yeah. um, made it last. But yeah. They would be aged in barrels for months at end, which we just don't do anymore yeah. with beer. So, um, would love to try a authentic, original, original style. IPA. Presumably not very fizzy. But no, prob- yeah. probably very flat um, and probably quite delicious. Six, six months in wood. Mm. I'm picturing almost a special brew type flavour. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> extra spe- scent of cognac. Yeah, I was. I used to think I went through a period of thinking that I was allergic to hops uh, because. <laughs> Or to IPAs, because, like, like, when I used to go out and just drink, like, 12 pints of IPA... Always felt really bad the day afterwards. Like, (laughs) Lagunitas or whatever, which is, like, 7%. When I lived in London, it's, like, all they served is, like, 
uh, really strong like Beaver Town beers and Lagunitas mm. and stuff like that. And then it's like, oh, I feel really like ill and I've got a headache the next morning. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why that is. <laughs> I must be allergic to hops, to IPAs. Um, but I don't think that's what it was. No. Um, but yeah, the whole world of like Anglo-Indian um, cuisine and, and culture is uh, is interesting. There's obviously mm. dishes like kedgeri, yes, for example, which doesn't really exist as an Indian dish. No, um, but has came, came about as the kind of combination of um, British and Indian culture. Yeah, um, there's a. Uh, there was a book which was compiled. So Kedgeri is one of the words, I believe, in um, this book, which is a dictionary of words which... Um, well, it's like an Anglo-Indian dictionary. Right. And the book is called Hobson Jobson. Uh, which <laughs> means Hobson Jobson uh, is a word, an Anglo-Indian word, right. for... Uh, just means like a festival or like, uh. like a, a sort of... A hullabal- well, like a... A riotous festival. Okay. Hops and jobs. Hops and jobs. <laughs> and um, it was this, uh, I mean, in classic colonial style, this book was written by two Englishmen, mm. Colonel Henry Yule and A.C. Burnell. Um, and it's been a very kind of uh, influential book, and it's the reason why people became aware of these words which since have passed into English. You're right. Like bungalow. Uh, is one curry curry uh, something you wouldn't expect like uh, calico gingham mm, mm. Uh, there's also like what bang- did they call gingham before with the term for gingham I yeah I don't know yeah it's an interesting <laughs> one isn't it? um, uh, bangle pyjama shampoo mm. there are lots of them um, and they kind of listed a lot of these in uh, in this dictionary Um but it's kind of like, so it's a very influential book um, and it's written in a kind of, so their definitions are quite funny and stuff and it's like, clearly it's... Uh, light-hearted. It's light-hearted, well-humoured. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of, I think, self-deprecating towards the British in places and it's not necessarily, uh, you know, it's like, it seems to be good intention but obviously hasn't aged that well in the context of being written by colonial people. Yes. Yeah. Has. So there was some... Um, controversy over their use their uh choice of hobson jobson as the title because uh so it is it it's an example of what the, this thing that is called it's called rhyming reduplication like right. hobson jobson which is where like to our ears the reason why we find things like that like charming and funny and stuff is because in english words like that tend to be either like it's like humpty dumpty mm. Um, or hey, namby pam mumbo jumbo. mumbo jumbo. It's all like they're yeah. either sort of funny or they're like a bit derogatory sort of thing. Right. Um, and then it was also a play on words because Hobson and Jobson, apparently in Victorian times, Victorian England, were stock characters who were like idiots, right. basically. Um, and the thing that I found really interesting reading about this is this title, so the title is a joke, Um some people suggested, or the authors, I think, suggested, no, we were referring to ourselves by calling, by choosing Hobson Jobson. Um, so we're the idiots. Right. But even at this time, in the 1880s, um, 
it was contra like people were like you shouldn't call it that it's disrespectful it's controversial mm. yeah and so they didn't tell the publisher until like a week before it was published oh, by the way it's going to be called Hobson <laughs> um so i found it interesting but it also reminded me a bit of like um this thing you quite often get it in like representations of indian culture in the uk where it's Anglo-Indian words like that, which are presented in a way like we find it funny. So like when you go to Dishoom, for example, great restaurant, yep. we're also yep. more than open to uh, initiating a professional relationship. <laughs> um, but, you know, they have, so they're based on like the Irani cafes in Mumbai, like Leopold's, and their kind of branding is it uses a lot of these, of this kind of, it's like Anglo-Indian stuff, mm. like words like English, which is, uh, in a way which we find either it's like I don't even know how you describe it, but sort of slightly eccentric, yeah, sort of thing, or like, um, yeah, like I don't know, in a way that we find charming, yes. that way. But it's also kind of a bit like there is something a bit colonial about it, yeah, in the way that it's presented as like uh, this thing. But when you actually go to India, they also find it funny. So it's like, it's, a, it's again, it's a more complicated thing than like, so like they have road signs, which use these like punny Anglo-Indian like yeah. jokey things. Like I remember one which said, um, it's better to be Mr. Late than a late mister. <laughs> <laughs> right, which is obviously meant to be funny. Like, yeah. <laughs> and it's funny, but it's also plays on the thing of like, um, I don't know, it's that like, that slightly idiosyncratic use of English. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah. I don't know, it's a really interesting one. I just found it interesting that they, even at that time, it was considered controversial for them Definitely. to use that as a title. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Now it probably wouldn't be controversial to use that title. Like, no one would know what you're talking about if you did it now. No, exactly. <laughs> but I would quite like to bring back the word Hobson Jobson yes. into mainstream English. <laughs> to mean a, a party. Yeah. A festival. Yeah. A good time. Other countries which have been influenced massively by colonialism mm. obviously loads of them but I've just got back from Malta yes just yesterday um, from a travel writers convention <laughs> conference <laughs> don't ask <laughs> <laughs> um, and obviously Malta being where it is in the Mediterranean has been like a, almost like a constant stream of colonizers everyone's been there everyone's yeah. been there everyone's left their mark um, and yeah, most kind of, I suppose, significantly, like compar- relatively recent history, um, the Spanish king, I think it was, sent the Knights of St. John to Malta to protect it from the Ottomans. Right. Because they were worried the Ottomans were going to go and take Malta. So it became like a buffer between Europe and, you know, the East. Mm. Right. Um, and, yeah, that's kind of certainly reflected in all sorts of things there. Like the language is really, really interesting, Maltese language. Even though it's only like it's only an hour and a half on a boat from Sicily, Malta, mm. but um, and it's Sicily also obviously has big like um, Arabian influence and stuff. But Malta, you can really see it in the language yeah, more. Um, and but then later on, Malta became a British crown colony. Yeah, and uh, definitely still very evident the British influence there. I mean. Obviously, loads of, most people speak English, but also they've got like red phone boxes, mm, red post boxes, yeah. um, and the food is something as well, which is 
influenced by, well, by the the whole of their their colonial history. We went to a place um, in Valletta called the Maritime Museum, where they have an amazing restaurant, and they served like they served us a tasting menu, um, which they said was from, would have been from 1757. That was like the snapshot of the influences in Malta at that time. Uh, so it was a Maghrebi lentil soup as a mm. starter. Um, so this North African influence. Yeah. Um, and then they served a, it was a like a pasta omelette. So it was like, it was baked vermicelli okay. in, in egg. And then it had like a ground spicy sausage on the top. Wow, that sounds mental. Some, like a bit of an Italian influence. Yeah. Um, pork actually is an interesting one because uh, pork's quite uh, prevalent over there. Or historically it has been. And people have suggested that, again, it's, it's part of this identity thing of, because it's a, it's a buffer against you know what was the the Muslim world. Yeah, um, it's like them saying it's them picking their side. We saying, eat pork. We eat yeah. pork. Yeah. Rather than... What the Spanish did in the uh, yeah Reconquista and yeah. Uh, Inquisition. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so and then after the pasta omelette, they served us um, an interesting dish, which was an entire artichoke. Like massive, mm. like a massive, like hand grenade on the plate, uh, in French butter sauce, and the story behind this relates, in fact, to well, kind of indirectly to the Knights of Saint John, but more directly to Caravaggio, the painter. Yes. Do you know this story? Uh, I don't know the story, but I know there's a lot of Caravaggio pieces on in. Boston. Yeah, so you 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 might have seen the um, the particularly famous one in the. Co Cathedral of yeah. of the Knights of Saint John in Valletta. That's the one that, that we saw. And um, so the reason they served um, a whole artichoke in French butter is there's this story that Caravaggio, who obviously wasn't Maltese, was Italian. Mm. But um, I mean, we talked last week about how you should never mess with Italians' food. Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> and he, so the story goes that he was in Rome. He went for lunch, and he asked for. Four artichokes, two of them in oil and two of them in butter. And the plate came and they were all, it was all on the same plate. Mm. And he said, um, how, how am I supposed to tell the difference between the ones in butter and butter? <laughs> the way to say something to the effect of smell them and you should be able to tell the difference, basically. <laughs> uh, so Caravaggio attacked him. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Caravaggio was like, was quite a hot-headed guy, to put, yeah. put it mildly. He attacked him and uh, he brandished his sword at him. Uh, and the waiter got away. Right. And this is uh, this is all recorded amazingly. Actually, this is all recorded verbatim in the police record. Oh wow! <laughs> which, considering this is this was on April the twenty sixth, sixteen oh four. Amazing. And so, supposedly, uh, he said, "This is as relayed by uh, Jesse Locker." He says, "When the waiter brought out the artichokes on a single earthenware platter, Caravaggio asked him how they were supposed to know which were which." According to Dofasacci's account, this was an eyewitness, Right, said the waiter replied that he, he should be able to smell them to tell the difference, at which point Caravaggio stood up without a word, threw the plate of artichokes <laughs> at the waiter's face, striking him in his own curious phasing at moustache level, <laughs> and then reaching for his companion's sword, which was lying on the table. Um, and the waiter fled to the nearest police station to file a complaint. Later on, this this event kind of presaged something later in Caravaggio's life, which was he murdered someone over a game of tennis. 
<laughs> oh, that Tusker equivalent. Oh, man. Um, and so he, he had to flee Rome. Right. And he ended up in Malta, and his plan was by ingratiating himself with the Knights of St. John, by getting mm. commissioned by them to paint. Yeah. Um, he uh, would end up getting a pardon from the Pope, which did happen in the end. Oh, fair play. Um, so, yeah, that was why they decided to service those artichokes. Yeah. Which were very nice. But there was, uh, yeah, in there's this amazing uh, portrait of it's the execution of John the Baptist mm. in, in the cathedral of, in Valletta. Um, so, yeah, that's one, uh, that little meal sort of encapsulated all the, some of the many influences on um, on Maltese cuisine. They did overlook the British influence. Right. But it is there. Yes. In, in Maltese food. Uh, Maltesers. Maltesers. <laughs> uh, funnily enough, Bovril is very popular in Malta. Oh. Apparently. Apparently they eat it. This sounds awful, but like they feed this to children, apparently. They mix it with pastina, which is like small pasta. Right. Uh, and laughing cow cheese. Dry Bovril. Yeah, like, so they cook the pasta. Yeah. And they make they mix in like Bovril and, yeah. Bovril and Cheese. Oh, cheese that, triangles. That sounds horrendous. Which I guess is the French influence. <laughs> that sounds absolutely disgusting. Um, yeah, and then obviously they have their own like more sort of, um, well, seemingly more native things, but also not because their national dish is curry. Is a curry. One track. <laughs> curry in the brain. <laughs> their national dish is a rabbit stew. Yes, um, I ate a lot of rabbit when I was in Malta. Yeah, I remember that. Um, Me too. It's yeah. phenomenal. Really good. Uh, and quite interesting that such a tiny like usually with island cuisine it's often quite fish based mm. and and Maltese does have a lot of fish but uh, it's weird that their main dish is is a land yeah. animal yeah well again it was a colonial thing so mm. rabbits weren't native to Malta but the Phoenicians brought them right and then they just for whatever reason thrived in the Maltese countryside um, and they became very popular to the point, actually, that when the Knights of St. John were in charge, they outlawed hunting rabbits because they worried that they would go extinct oh. and that they wouldn't have, they wanted self-sustaining resources, yeah. sort of thing. Um, but luckily, they breed like rabbits. So. Exactly, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Um, and also, people, uh, as a kind of, again, like a symbol, trying to using food as a symbol of the national identity or whatever, uh, the Maltese people, as a symbol, of, as an act of resistance against the Knights of St. John and the ban on hunting they yeah. just carried on hunting yeah, rabbits of course and um, kind of for that reason partly and partly just the tradition of it is now like it's considered a Maltese national dish mm. uh, so yeah pretty interesting um, I've recently been to Malta yes you've recently been Alf Berlin <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, yeah um, which is German for yes yeah, uh, I'm pretty I, sure Alf Berlin is German, <laughs> on Berlin. On Berlin. Um, yes, and the Germans have their own interpretation of uh, what curry means, yeah. um, which I, I'm sure many of our listeners will be aware of and hopefully will have tried. It's the, the delicious currywurst. I love currywurst. Currywurst is so good. Um, for, for those who don't know it, currywurst is essentially a, a pork sausage slathered in a kind of slightly spicy ketchup and then dusted with some some curry powder um and it's phenomenal um the history of curry versus quite an interesting one it's actually uh 
it touches on a lot of what we've kind of talked about already of these kind of themes of different cultures colliding and uh, new recipes or you know new words even coming out from from that kind of mix of culture. Obviously, uh, Berlin is the home of the currywurst, although now it can be found all over Germany. Um, but it started uh, just after the Second World War um, in West Berlin when, um, as legend goes, a, a German housewife by the name of Hertha Heuer, or Hoyer, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, again, we will butcher any. We will butcher any and every foreign word. Some English ones as well. Anyway, Hertha Hoyer, Hoyer uh, was uh, living in West, West Berlin um, after the Second World War um, and when it was under British, American and, and French occupation in West Berlin. Um, and she was in the British quarter and she came across a British soldier who, he wanted some alcohol, classic. She wanted some food, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> and they traded her bottle of spirits uh, and he gave her his ketchup, curry powder and Worcestershire sauce. Right. So, a, you know, pretty good deal. Uh at the time, uh, insofar as it completely changed Herta's life, she, uh, through trial and error, so the story goes, went home and mixed these ingredients that she wasn't familiar with. Um, all three actually very British ingredients. Even the curry powder is more British than Indian. Mm-hmm. It's not really something they use in India. Um, but through trying these, these three British ingredients and mixing it with, the obviously, the typical German bratwurst sausage... Um, she eventually created curry verse by yeah, mostly well sausage, a lots of lots of ketchup, a little bit of Worcester sauce, Worcester sauce, and then dusted with the uh, the curry powder. Mm-hmm. Um, she then uh, started selling it around the district of Charlottenburg in in West Berlin, where obviously there was a lot of construction going on at the time because it had been blown to bits in the war, um, and the construction workers really took a liking to it. Um, and it started to spread from from there. Um, she alone, at, at her height, was selling ten thousand servings of currywurst in a single wow. week. Um, and obviously, you know, people started to imitate, do their own spins on it, um, and it grew and grew and grew and grew and became really this icon of uh, of German cuisine. Um, Herta herself. Um, sadly passed uh, at the age, uh, the ripe old age of 86 in 1999. Yeah. Um, but Currywurst lives on. Uh, Germany had a short-lived, or well, Berlin had a short-lived Currywurst Museum um, between, I think, uh, uh, 2009 and 2018, so nine years of Currywurst Museum. Um, <laughs> that's pretty good. Pretty good. I'm annoyed because I was in Berlin during that time and I didn't go didn't to the go. Well, you, sh- you really should have done. Um, and patrons could follow a source trail that took you through the history of Currywurst yeah. uh, and with exhibits and displayed aim- displays aimed at engaging the senses of sight, smell, and sound. Highlights include a spice chamber with sniffing stations and a sausage shaped sofa. So. It's really gone from strength to strength, Currywurst. It's absolutely everywhere you go in, in Berlin and many other parts of, of Germany as well. Cities like Hamburg in particular, Munich. We had some Currywurst when we were there. Yeah, um, yeah it's it's fantastic. And the great thing is it's a truly cheap 
street food as well. Like you can get a curry burst for like two euros yeah. and it will keep you going for There's a while. There's only so much you can get away with charging for <laughs> a bit of sausage and tomato ketchup and curry butter. <laughs> True. But yeah, it's very good. It's probably, I mean, I would say it's the crowning glory of German cuisine, which is not saying a great deal. No. But, we, um, yeah, we don't want to get cancelled by Germany, but no. it's certainly not one of the better it's not the cuisines. Of better cuisines. Um, and, but curry burst is, is a great thing. Curry burst is elite, yeah. Yeah, yeah you mentioned curry powder mm. um, not being that authentic of a, mm. an ingredient. Um, it was originally created uh, in the 18th century by Indian merchants to sell to British traders right. to take home. Um, but I mean, they have a obviously they do use garam masala, like spice blends yeah. and stuff in India. But the curry powder, as we know it um, over here, is uh, yeah, kind of a more modern invention. Yeah. Interestingly, though, British curry powder was then taken by the British to Japan, mm. and the whole genre of Japanese curry, which is a great genre. Yeah, katsu curry. Katsu curry. Is built on uh, on that yeah. curry powder, and it's been. I mean, it's elevated to the point where types of Japanese curries are like right up there with Japanese national dishes. Mm, yeah, I think they say like Japanese yeah, that Japanese curry is the national dish, right? Yeah, more so than. Um, and this was only in in the Meiji era, so eighteen sixty. 1860s to 1910s that was the time when it, when when it was, powder was so it's had a uh, meteoric rise yes. in the land of the rising sun and also um, it was well I suppose a big part of the reason why perhaps it became more popular in the 20th century was um, the Imperial Japanese Navy started adopting curry to prevent beriberi which is a disease of uh, theamine deficiency okay um and even to this day, the Japan, the Japan Maritime Self-Defense Force eat curry every Friday. I love that. Yeah, yeah. it's better it's than better, fish every better, Friday. Better than fish every yeah. Friday. Yeah, way better. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, curry is good for you. Yes, that's a fact, and that's an undeniable fact. <laughs> yes. Um, so, I think with that, we should leave it for this week. Mm. I need to tell everyone to eat more curry. And not only that, and also like subscribe give us a five star review give us a five star Um, and tell your friends tell your friends and we'll see you next week Bye. bye